Hello, hello. I know I'm crazy with Naja Hall. How are you all today on this beautiful Tuesday? You know, we do new episodes every other Tuesday on all of your favorite streaming platforms. So today we have an amazing guest here, right? We've had quite a few legal eagles on this podcast, but today is kind of extra special. Not because he's from my hometown of Memphis, Tennessee, <laughs> not because he's a Harvard Law graduate, but because he's really helping us on an issue that will at some point affect every single one of us. Today, we're talking love, marriage, divorce, co-parenting, step-parenting, prenups, and postnups. We're talking a lot about money. So right after this dance break, we have attorney Aaron Thompson coming right up. I know I'm crazy. I know I'm crazy. I know I'm doing crazy. I know I'm crazy. Not your okay, you all. So I have a lot to tell you about Aaron, and I'm going to go as fast as I possibly can. There is so much to tell you about this gentleman. So Aaron, he's from Memphis, Tennessee. He's a 2002 graduate from Harvard Law and a 1998 grad from Emory University. Go Emory. Since 2004, he's been known as a skilled litigator, winning dozens of jewelry trials and bench trials in several metro Atlanta counties. In 2020, Aaron launched prenups.com, a friendly and fair take on premarital and postmarital agreements. Prenups have gotten a bad reputation. Hmm, we'll talk about that in a minute. But they can also be a useful tool that couples that want to start their financial relationship in an intentional, transparent, and fair way. When he got married in 2016, he wanted to avoid the fights over finances that he has seen break up hundreds of marriages during his career. He set out to draft himself a prenup that would help eliminate money arguments during the marriage, rather than just planning how to split up assets in a divorce. After realizing the benefits in his own marriage, he set out to provide this service to a whole lot of other people. You can also learn more about that at prenups.com. But we're going to talk about this in Aaron's seven financial strategies for building a rock solid marriage. Aaron Thompson, Memphis, Tennessee. What's up with you today? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Just, you know, good. I rarely read somebody's entire bio, but yours is just so doggone good. Like, I, I just have thank you appreciate the props i'll take it so let's talk prenups because yes they do get an incredibly bad rep and i want to know how did your wife when you said hey um we're gonna do a prenup let's talk about it we especially hear a lot of women um shunning that of course unless she has a trust or she has her own family money or a lot of built-up assets so how do you broach the topic yeah. So, you know, in, in my relationship, it really wasn't difficult because my wife, is number one, a lawyer and number two, had been married before. And oh, that's okay. Uh, so, you know, she had been down that road before. Um, you know, when we met, she, we were both kind of anti-marriage uh, generally when we met each other. Um, but if we were going to get into it, if we're going to do the marriage thing, we're going to do it the right way and not leave anything up to chance. You know, someone who's been through a divorce before, I think, mm -hmm. has a little bit more perspective on why it can be helpful, particularly if you were the if you were the financially uh, responsible party in your marriage and you're married to someone who is less responsible. Uh, it's a little bit easier of a sell. It's I could it's a headache. And I've seen been adjacent to those divorces where one person might be the breadwinner, but then there's children in the scenario. So let's just say two people are getting together. 
um, they don't have children together at this point. They decide to get married. In your prenup, can you put clauses in there for children that are not here? Or is that something that has to be done post-nup? Well, you can't cover anything that has to do with custody or child support in a prenup. A lot of times when we're dealing with child issues, we're talking about setting aside an inheritance for uh, children from a previous relationship, or maybe saying, you know, if those kids have expenses, if one of the parties, one of the spouses is paying child support, where does that money come from? Um, you know, typically if you're getting married, you don't want some of your earnings to be going to pay a child support for your spouse's kid from another relationship. And so uh, it is one, that's one of the things, you know, we like to set out in our prenups or postnups is um, what money goes where, you know, during the marriage itself. Why is money such a touchy thing to talk about? You know, when you, we would like to all think that we shouldn't make love and money, these adjacent things, but why is it so difficult and why do so many people avoid this very important conversation yeah i think it's because you know money is just such a taboo topic to discuss when we grew up learning in our society that conversations about money are rude you don't ask somebody how much they make you don't even ask you don't even ask your, your parents how much they make you know that that information wasn't shared in our households we don't learn personal finance. We learn trigonometry and history in school. We learn all kinds of stuff. That we don't even need, and I surely don't remember. Very questionable use in our adult lives, this information that we're required to use. But everyone needs to know personal finance, how to manage credit cards, how to manage money when you get in a relationship. And we don't learn the first thing about it. Um, so that's one side of it. And then I think there's also, there's a little bit of shame in, in involved in money where um, we don't want to, we all think that we should be a little bit further along in our financial journeys. And so when people get into a relationship, they've got a little bit more credit card debt than they wish they did. They've got a little bit more in student loans than they wish they had. They don't have as much in retirement as they wish they did. And so there's also a little bit of embarrassment in sharing, you know, kind of mm. your finances, even when you're legally combining your finances with another person, which is what you do when you're getting married. So I know you've seen a lot of your clients, right? Because you're a top divorce attorney. So that means you've handled a lot of divorces. And I'll bet you the one thing that you've seen, or you probably asked yourself in the back of your head is, why in the hell do y'all not have a prenup? Like, what, what? what are some of the reasons that you hear, especially from the higher earners, on why they didn't just do it in the first place? Was it the shame or... Is there like a common thread? I think there's I think there's a, a few different reasons. I think one of them is, you know, unfortunately, nobody thinks they're getting divorced. You know, it's, it's no one predicts that they're getting divorced. I read some statistic where it said that uh, 96 percent of marrying couples think that there's no chance that they'll ever get divorced, um, which, you know, one, it kind of makes you wonder what are the four percent thinking that that are right. you're like why am i doing so well doing so well in my job i don't know <laughs> um but um i think that you know when we're getting married all we're thinking about is the romance and you know the the lovey-dovey nature of marriage and it's just it's the least romantic most uncomfortable thing to talk about money but you know, historically money has always played a big role in in marriages i mean um you know, people, you know, marriage historically was 
you know, you go back far enough, it was joining tribes. It was about creating alliances. You know, it's still joining kingdoms for goodness. Joining kingdoms. Um, You know, in religion, we talk about being equally yoked, you know, when you when you get married. Um, A lot of it was to, you know, uh, form alliances with, you know, another prominent family in town. And so money has always played a role in marriage. It's only very recently that we treat marriage like it's romance and nothing else. And so, um, you know, especially with the higher earners, I think a lot of them, um, they, they don't want to be offensive to their spouse. Um, and I think they also don't know where to start um, because yes. of how bad, uh, 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 you know, prenups uh, reputation is. Um, okay. So, you know what, Aaron? Okay, the well, so let's just say this. You yeah. meet a person, you meet your partner, you date for two, three years, you're like, oh my God, this is the one. And maybe you've made mention of prenups or one of your homeboys or homegirls, they did one in their relationship and you already know your partner's like, absolutely not. But you've made up in your mind, this is something that has to happen for me. I'm not planning for a divorce, but you know, it's just another piece of paper that we won't have to use. How do you sit your partner down? Do you take them to a nice fancy dinner and do it in a public setting? Do you take them, you tell them you take them to a dinner and then you go end up at a lawyer, end up at your office with some paperwork? How, wait till the wedding day? How do you, how do you ease into it so it's not fireworks with someone that's adverse? To- right, right. No, great question. I think the place to start with a, a, a prenup conversation is the exact opposite of where most people start, which is most people start at the end. What happens if we get divorced? And to me, that's such a tiny, tiny part of what a good prenup is supposed to do. So I recommend taking it in, in three stages. Okay. One is before the marriage, two is during the marriage, and three is what I call the contingency plans, right? So, okay. so before the marriage is, is just what are you coming into the marriage with? Start that conversation. Should we be transparent about what our money looks like coming in? You don't want to be surprised and learn that your your future spouse has 50 grand of credit card debt that the creditors are coming after them for after your marriage, right? You want to know if your future spouse has, you know, $20,000 of unpaid child support debt that your joint tax returns or your refunds are going to be uh, garnished later on down the road. So putting everything on the table and saying, this is what our financial pictures look like. And this is what our financial habits are. You know, are you the kind of person that carries credit card debt every month? Do you pay it off every month? And so that kind of pre-marriage financial conversation is a good place to start. And then step two is how are you gonna handle your finances during the marriage? Are you gonna have one big joint bank account and all the money goes in there and all the expenses are paid from that one account? Or are you gonna have you know, what I recommend, a joint account that's only for the joint expenses. And then each person still has their own separate accounts where they have their own money, where they can do their own spending without oversight from the other spouse, Um, you know, something like that. Uh, What responsibilities are going to be each person's? You know, if you have debt coming in, you know, presumably that's going to be your responsibility to pay that debt. And then only after you talk about kind of before the marriage and during the marriage practices, do you go into what I call the contingency plans? And even then, it's not only about divorce. How much life insurance do we need to have if worse comes to worse? You know, what happens if somebody passes away? Do I do we have wills in place? 
You know, have we prepared for worst case, you know, scenarios that don't involve divorce? And then, yes, at the very end of that, yes, what happens if the marriage didn't work out? What will be our responsibilities then? What are we taking with us? What are we dividing? Can we agree on what's fair now so we don't end up in a situation where we're giving tens of thousands of dollars to lawyers to figure out? Can we just agree while we love each other? What would be fair? <laughs> while we love each other is so important. Because once you start hating each other, honey, everything they say is mud. Right, right. <laughs> there's no trust, there's no communication, everything's broken down. It's the worst time to come to a settlement or come to an agreement on what happens to your finances, but that's exactly what most people do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned something. You said that um, what you would recommend in your, in your point number two is let's have a joint account and then we both pay the bills, household expenses, marital expenses out of that. What percentage have you seen work of income should go into that joint account? Does your partner share kids with a loony? Are your stepkids driving you up a wall? Is your partner failing miserably at setting boundaries? Well, VIP Stepmom is where you need to be. We're an exclusive private community just for stepmoms, and we'd love for you to join our tribe. Each month, our members enjoy private conversations, podcasts, expert workshops, a subscription to Stepmom Magazine, and monthly live Zoom meetings. If you're ready to join a diverse community that is committed to making sure you live your best life, visit VIP Stepmom today. We'll save a seat for you. VIP, VIP, Stepmoms, that's you and me. So there's there's a couple different ways to do it. Um, one is kind of inside out and the other is outside in. So the inside out, if all the income goes into the joint account and then each spouse gets kind of an allowance from that that goes out into their separate accounts. Um, then And the, all, the opposite is outside in, which is most people who get married later in life prefer to do an outside in where their money goes into their separate accounts and then they agree, all right, what are our joint expenses? Is it mortgage, utilities, groceries, food we eat out together, trips we take together, car insurance? Those are kind of the typical categories. Um, and so it's going to vary depending on the income level of the couple, right? For some, 30% of their take-home income might be sufficient to pay all of their joint expenses. So they can deposit 30% of their expenses of each of their incomes into the joint account. Um, for some, it may be 50, 60% of their income has to go um, into that account. I think the important thing is number one, that each spouse is left with some play money at the end of the day. <laughs> yes. Without oversight from the you other. You gotta person. have your play money. You got you gotta have your play money. Right, right. I mean, in 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 my relationship, you know, in particular, I know that I gotta have the new phone when it comes out. There's nothing wrong with my old <laughs> But I gotta have I gotta have a new phone when it comes out, right? Yes, Where yes. my wife doesn't get that, you know, but she's more likely to go out to eat than I am. And I'm fine. I'm from Brownback. I'll take, you know, I'll take leftovers for lunch. I have no problem with that. We just agree on each other's play expenses. We just have to have our own separate money without oversight from the other, from the other party. But yes. the other important thing is that you don't have two people living in the same household, but in different socioeconomic classes. Right. Mm. So, so if one spouse is making 10 grand a month and the other is making four grand a month, but you say each spouse has to contribute $3,000 to the joint account to pay the bills, then one spouse is left with seven grand of play money and the other spouse only has one grand of play money 
Right. And that's a recipe for resentment um, and issues down the road. So I and that's quite unrealistic. So I think maybe a percentage would be better. Like, hey, like you said, we're both going to do just throwing a number out there. 30, 50 percent. That's that's workable. I like that. So then let's just say I win the lottery next month. And I'm looking over at my husband. I'm like, damn, I got this 20 million. No, 100 million dollars. Baby, let's do, let's talk about um, a post up just in case. <laughs> is that something that's fair? I mean, obviously, this is money that was acquired during the marriage, but um, can you sign a post up whenever you feel like it under any circumstances? In most states, yes, you can sign a post up um, at almost any given time. I've had people sign post ups uh, within three, you know, to six months of them eventually getting divorced. So um, I've also done postnups for people who they wanted to do a prenup and they just ran out of time, you know, while negotiating it before the wedding date, they get married and then they come back and they sign their postnup the week after the marriage. So Gosh, that feels so unromantic and unsexy though. Like, oh, we had this beautiful wedding. Okay. Now let's talk about breaking it all up. Like, but like you said, it's a contingency plan. It's not a, an end of days piece of paper. Right. And, and, you know, I think you make a good point in that it's not romantic, but guess what? A lot of being married is, is a whole lot of unromantic stuff. I Let's mean, talk about it. <laughs> I mean, the relationship, you know, the romantic parts of, of a marriage are limited, right? I mean, it's and not, you know, every I think that's a whole nother podcast right there, right? <laughs> we could literally talk about that for an hour of what they, told us that it was going to be versus what it actually is. But it's still, in my opinion, still one of the most beautiful institutions I've ever experienced. So absolutely, absolutely. Okay. So then what about changing your mind? Let's just say, okay, we did this pre premarital agreement. We got our prenup in place and then we're starting to settle into the marriage. Things have happened. And I'm like, I want to go and make some changes to that because I don't think it's fair that I don't get part of your granddaddy's trust that he left you. Like, I want some of that now. Um, how did we broach that? Is that something that you've seen from your experience possibly happen? Absolutely, absolutely. I've done, I've done a couple post-nups uh, this year alone where I did the prenup for the couple, you know, a year or two prior. Um, and I think it is a healthy thing uh, for couples to go back and revisit what their financial plan uh, for their marriage is. You know, what worked or what you thought might work when you got married um, may not be your reality two, three years in. You may have a spouse that's like, you know, it makes sense for me to stay home, you know, with a child, but I can't do that if I'm not getting a piece of what you're earning outside the house that you're only able to earn because I'm, I'm holding it down on the ah, home. Ah, makes sense. Um, and so people, you know, should come. In fact, you know, I recommend including a clause in your prenup that says you have to sit down once a year and talk about, you know, the state of the marital finances. So, for example, in my own prenup, my wife and I have a rule where we sit down every December and we talk about certain things for the upcoming year. What is going to be our retirement account contributions? Um, how much money are we putting aside for travel? Um, now we've got a kid. How much money do we want to set aside for, you know, child expenses? Is there a certain limit or budget that we want to set for that? Um, it's just kind of building in communication into your relationship. 
And that's just a good habit to have generally. That bleeds out into other areas of the relationship. If your default is, let's sit down and talk about it. Okay. That's all. Oh, gosh. You know, and we would think that we wouldn't need to tell adults, let's talk about money. But as you said earlier, it's just something that we're very comfortable with avoiding because it feels it's we've been made to feel seedy and shame and salacious about talking about something that's a very important part, if not one of the most important parts of our adult experience is earning a living and taking care of our families. Right. Right. And what's going to be your investment strategy? And are both people in on the meetings with the financial advisors? I mean, you know, making the default, putting it out on the table and talking about it, even if it's uncomfortable, you can see why that's a good habit to have in a relationship generally, money-wise or otherwise. Okay, so let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about um, divorces with children, because a lot of people that listen to this particular podcast There are people that are in blended families and they have found themselves in the middle of conundrums when it comes to finding ways to raise the same child and they no longer get along or they no longer love each other or that hate has turned into something else. What are some of the most effective things you've seen the people that consciously uncouple? I think that's what they're calling it now Mm -hmm. that you've seen these people do. I think, you know, I think one powerful thing that I've seen, and I've seen all kinds of co-parenting relationships over my years, you know, doing this work. I'll bet you have. Is is recognizing, you know, what is important to come to an agreement on with the other parent and what things you can let go. Um, You know, there's something that a lot of people talk about in terms of, you know, moving away from co-parenting and moving towards parallel parenting, meaning, you know, most of what you do in your house is, is okay, that's gonna be it for your house. And what I do in my house is gonna be in my house. And kids adapt to, for example, different bedtimes in the different households or different rules on limits on screen time in the different households or even different diets in the household. I mean, you can drive yourself crazy over whether or not French fries are allowed in your <laughs> household. Or you can accept that the rules are simply gonna be different you know, over there and control what you can control in your own household. I mean, if you couldn't control your spouse when you were married and you're now divorced from them, how much control are you going to be able to exert now that you're divorced? I mean, you would think that that's like kind of a duh, Captain Obvious. From my experience, and I'm pretty sure from yours too, we've literally seen adults who knew darn well they couldn't control the person. Like you said, when you were with them, they're trying to control every single aspect when it comes to that child in this other person's household. And that's something that causes everybody pain and anguish. Yeah, it's, it's totally a recipe for, for frustration and a fool's errand. And guess what? The more you try to control that other person, what are they going to do? The more they're going to do the exact opposite of what you want them to do. Absolutely. Just the they're going to be defiant because they're going to try to show you, you ain't running nothing over there. So at what point do you realize that a client is, You're like, oh, you know what? This person doesn't just want to end the marriage. They don't just want to find a way to um, share custody. They want to harm this other person or this person might be be disordered. What do you do when you come? Because I know you come across it. Oh, my God. And um, you're a top litigator. So that means you've probably had clients that had the money to out litigate their other person or they wanted to use you as their repository or their mouthpiece to harm the other party. 
how does Aaron react when he recognizes one of these people sitting across from him, uh, his desk? I think, I think what you are bringing up, Naj, is one of the most important roles of a good and ethical attorney, which is- Ethical, y'all, he said ethical. <laughs> I know, I know a, lot of, a lot of your listeners probably think that that's an oxymoron. <laughs> but, but is, is, cause it's very easy to convince somebody who's already angry at the other side to throw everything they've got and throw every last dollar they have at fighting the other person. Um, but I like to take my clients and begin with the end in mind. Where do you see yourself? Where do you want to be? Not let's use this divorce as a way to prove that you are the more virtuous person or that you were the better spouse or the better parent. Because if, if that's your hope, if that's what you want to get out of your divorce case, you're going to be sorely disappointed because the judge is going to be, the judge is going to be looking at how do I keep these kids safe? How much child support needs to be paid? How do these assets get divvied up? And if you're waiting for the judge to say, you, you were the virtuous spouse and how could you ever have been married to this horrible person <laughs> over here on the other side? You're, you're gonna be waiting a long time. And a lot of those people, when they go through the whole trial and the judge just says, all right, we're gonna split the house 50-50 and this is gonna be the custody schedule. And they're waiting for that pronouncement that they were the better person. And that's not what you're gonna get out of your divorce case. I mean, the divorce is about putting in place like specific rules and not about proving, um, you know, who is the more virtuous person. And so um, kind of, you know, helping people get to the place where they realize that, um, you know, that the, the legal process is very limited in what it's gonna provide for them in terms of closure. Um, or in terms Oh, of whoa, that, I gotta make a meme out of that. Because you just said something. It's like people don't realize that they are looking for closure from you, Aaron, and from the judge. And they're trying to stick it to their co-parent. And they're thinking, I'm going to hurt this person. And Lord, do they know what happens post-divorce. Right, right. And, and, and Naj, I don't know if you've heard the, the, the phrase that, you know, the best revenge is a life well lived. Absolutely. But, um, Absolutely. You know, I think that there is there is some truth to that, you know, and instead of getting bogged down in um, trying to, you know, extract some kind of punishment uh, against your ex-spouse, you know, the best thing you can do is, is let them see you loving your life. Uh, and, yeah. them and that sounds good. It sounds cute and nice and fluffy, but we know that people that are disordered, they ain't focusing on uh, getting revenge through a life well lived. They want that other person to hurt. One of my main platforms is bringing attention to the courts and the people that are responsible for setting these rules in place for families that are split is to recognize disordered personalities, to recognize mental illness. And um, <clears throat> one thing that I've mainly found is a narcissist, especially when you're dealing with a human being that probably is undiagnosed because a lot of narcissists don't get diagnosed is they are willing to lie and they are so good at building allies. And I don't think the, like you said, the legal system doesn't have the responsibility, number one, to recognize those disorders. They don't have the time, they don't have the training. Is there any type of training that you can suggest that lawyers, other lawyers that practice and lead with love and ethics, is there any type of training you can get to help them to recognize that these are the personalities that they're either representing or that they're going against. Anything yeah. you can think 
does? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a good question. Um, you know, I think that we could honestly all use uh, more training and kind of identifying some of these um, personality disorders. Um, narcissism, certainly something that comes up a lot in our cases. Borderline uh, personality is something we talk about almost every freaking episode. It always finds its way. So yeah, so. yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that this is something, you know, that that could be mandatory, you know, training, especially for people in the divorce industry, because um, that a messy, drawn out divorce takes on a family, you know, both parents, the children, um, it clogs up our court system as well. You know, um, there's a lot of and it probably also clogs, clogs up these attorneys bank accounts. I mean, and that's and I think that's one of the that's one of the catches is there are a lot of attorneys who who profit off of, you yeah. know, this kind of dysfunction and people who are willing to spend every last dime they've got to spite the other party. Um, yeah. I think, you know, uh, you know, exposing some of those attorneys is also a valid option, you know, for what they are and letting those attorneys who, um, you know, I mean, one thing that we're proud about is you go look at our reviews, you know, my firm's reviews and people talk about how empathetic they were and how compassionate they were and how we were able to separate, you know, the end goal they wanted from, you know, that desire that even the best of us have to try to punish the other person. Yeah. Uh, and it's and show that it's also a valid business model for us lawyers to leave people in a happier place, because guess what? They'll send you they'll send you clients, you know, all day long. They'll they'll yes. shout your name from the rooftops if you help them get to the end with their dignity intact, as well as their bank account. Absolutely. So then switching gears a little bit. When it comes to a client that sits in your office, they call you, say, hey, I want this consultation. I'm thinking about a divorce. I think a lot of people that listen to this podcast, they've experienced such nasty, seedy sides of divorce, and they feel like they didn't come across someone like you that left them with their dignity. And so they're trying to pick up the pieces. So there are some people that are probably considering how to effectively end their marriage. I don't think a lot of people understand what your attorney's responsibility is. A lot of y'all listening, you know, like you think your attorney's supposed to be your therapist, your life coach, you know, but you don't understand what this person's job is. And I know you have probably had to redirect or nudge a lot of people that come and sit down in your office. So can you tell us and just put it in kindergarten, put it in layman's terms. What's your job? What are you supposed to do when I come to your office and say, hey, Aaron, I want a divorce? What, what am I supposed to bring you? How can I help you help me? Yeah, the, the way that I like to break it down for clients is to recognize that there are essentially four categories of decisions that need to be made in your divorce. One, dividing up your assets and debts. Two, deciding if there's going to be alimony, how much and how long. Three, child custody. And four, child support. And anything that is outside of those four things is something that your attorney's probably not going to be able to help you handle. And guess what? A, a good therapist is still going to be a lot cheaper than your divorce lawyer is. And right. so breaking out those roles, you know, I tell people one of the best things somebody can do to prepare for a divorce. Yes, you want to gather all your financial information. Yes, you want to try to put together uh, a monthly budget to try to see how are you going to how are you going to pay your bills, you know, after you move from a two income household to a one income household. But one of the best things you can do to prepare for a divorce 
is get your team in place, get your support network up and running, your friends, your family, your job, really should know what's going on so that you have the support to get you through this process and you're not paying lawyer fees for you know what your friends or your therapist should be doing. Yes, that's great advice. And I hope that um, I hope that no one ever has to necessarily take his advice. However, if you do, please take into consideration, like he said, start building your team now. Start building your team because you're, you're, you're going to need a support team. So, Attorney Aaron, I'm not going to hold you too much longer. I told you I was going to keep you a little bit under an hour or so today. Um, but can you please tell everybody how they find you, where to find you, um, and especially how to support your uh, your book? Yes, we are at, we have two different websites. The main law firm is AaronThomasLaw.com. It's just how it sounds. Aaron is A-A-R-O-N. T-H-O-M-A-S-Law.com. And we are also at prenups.com, P-R-E-N-U-S-N-U-P-S.com. And you can download for free our ebook, Seven Financial Strategies for Building a Rock Solid Marriage. Um, no obligation, no charge there. So come nice. check Nice. How the heck did you get that domain? I think, I feel like that should have been taken years ago. You have something <laughs> special because domains like that are not hard to get. I know they're not, but you're an attorney and you're a top <laughs> from harvard we so paid money we paid money now you had to pay out of the frame for that <laughs> Aaron thomas i thank you so much for joining i know i'm crazy with naja hall everyone that is out there listening please go and visit prenups.com and definitely check out aaron's website all of the information every single one of his links will be down below make sure when you visit him you say hey naja sent me so i'll see you all tuesday after next on your favorite streaming platform this is I Know I'm Crazy with Naja Hall. I know I'm crazy. I know I'm crazy. I know I'm, know I'm crazy. I know I'm crazy. With Naja Hall.